guys, and welcome to episode 39 of Underrated, a show where we talk about films we believe are underrated, generally disliked, or simply forgotten. I'm your host, Gabriel Green, Virginia. And uh, with me here is my co-host, hailing from the great nation of Texas, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. I, I didn't prepare an accent to do, so I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about mine. <laughs> and also from Texas uh, is Chad Hopkins of the Cinescope Podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, it's awesome to have you with us again. Um, for those who don't know, we've had Chad on previously to talk about the Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, and the Beauty and the Beast remake. And uh, after Prince of Persia, we don't let him pick the films anymore. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I picked John Carter, but this is something that's been in the works for a while at this point. We, we've been talking about making this episode for a long time. Yeah, this was definitely on my radar when I when I, just, when I started the podcast. So, if, Chad, for any new listeners, uh, you want to briefly introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you do online? Sure. Um, I, my name is Chad Hopkins. I am a podcaster as well. I host a Cinescope podcast, which is a show about uh, celebrating the movies we love and why we love them. So every week I and a different co-host or co-hosts, as uh, you two have both been on the show at the same time with me before to talk stuff like Lord of the Rings. Uh, each week we talk about a specific movie that we enjoy for one reason or another. And the whole episode is focused on discussing that film positively. And uh, a large chunk of it is mostly dedicated toward discussing characters and the, the relationships between them. Uh, th that's what I always really take away from a film is how the characters interact with each other and how they grow with each other. And so that's what Cinescope is. It's just a show about looking at films positively and uh, celebrating the movies we love. It's a good show. You guys should check it out. Thank you. All right. Uh, so today, I, I think one of us mentioned it, but we're going to be talking about John Carter. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment and go and rate and review us on iTunes. Um, if you could just write a few words and give us five stars, it would make it uh, a lot easier for our new listeners to find us. Um, and so before we get into the main review, uh, have either of you seen any cool movies uh, this week that you want to mention? Uh, we'll start with you, Chad. I saw Captain Underpants earlier this week, and <laughs> I've got to say that I, I loved it. And a large part of that is oh, wow. probably due to nostalgia. I'm not going to lie. I read probably the first eight or nine Captain Underpants books when I was a kid because that was the, the time period they were being released. And then I sort of outgrew them before he actually finished the series. I think there's 12 total at this point. Uh, but the movie is done by DreamWorks. It's the first DreamWorks movie I've actually seen in theaters since uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2. And I, it's, it's so colorful, it's fun, the music by Theodore Shapiro is great, and it's just, there's a surprising amount of depth there alongside the potty humor that is expected from a title called Captain Underpants. But I, I had a great time in the theater, and I'm actually looking forward to maybe even seeing it again if I get the chance. Uh, that is shocking. I've, I've been very surprised by the uh, critical reception at the beginning, because I, I thought it looked really horrible, but huh. I think it's sitting at about an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it, it's doing really well. Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> I remember seeing the title for the book and thinking it was going to be ridiculous, and then my older sister would come down and visit, and she said that she used to babysit a lot of kids, and she would she would read those, you know, just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine for kids, and she said she ended up probably liking it more than the kids did, so I've... I've never actually read any of the books, but that's kind of the uh, the memory I always have whenever I think about it was the fact that apparently it's it's better than maybe the name would suggest. 
Yeah, I, I remember being aware of it growing up, but I never read it because I, I was a sophisticated kid and I had standards. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never really never heard a bad thing of it from uh, people who've actually read it. Yeah, it, it definitely is geared toward a little bit of a younger audience because of its uh, typical brand of humor. But I mean, the movie, the screenplay was written by Nicholas Stoller, who co-wrote the script for, I think, both of the newest Muppets movies. Um, definitely the first one. So oh, nice. it, it's very much in that realm of humor, um, and it, it's cleverly written, and there's a surprising amount of heart in the film. It, it's about celebrating friendship and how friendship overcomes obstacles, and uh, even uh, a commentary on how loneliness and uh, the lack of uh, positive relationships in your life can affect your well-being and how you treat others. So. Uh, yeah, you, you, you'd be surprised, but like I said, it's sitting, uh, sitting with a pretty good rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So I think it's definitely worth checking out. And uh, is that all for you, Chad? Yeah, so far. Uh, what about you, James? Yeah, this has just been a real, like consistently, um, slow summer for me for movies. I, once again, I've only seen one movie this week, but I introduced my younger sisters to Edgar Wright and we watched Hot Fuzz. Nice. And I I love that movie a little bit more every time I watch it. It is it's one of the most enjoyable and like well-rounded movie. Like it's it's it works in a lot of different ways. It's hilarious, but it has great characters and great character development, great acting. It's got a fun visual flair and it's it actually has outside of the ridiculous humor, it actually has a plot that's interesting and worth following <laughs> um it's it's actually probably my favorite edgar wright movie yeah all of the, all three cornetto films as well as uh the scott pilgrim are all just fantastic yeah it it made me somehow even more excited for baby driver oh my gosh is that, is that possible you know, I didn't think it was, and then I saw the 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and then I thought, okay, now I've reached the cap. And then I watched that again. I'm like, man, I forgot how much I like this. Now I'm even more excited. <laughs> so definitely looking forward to that. All right. I, I watched um, Rob Reiner and Aaron Sorkin's uh, film, The American President, and it's really, really good. Um, essentially, it's it's like a romantic comedy that asks – what it would what it would be like if the president tried uh, dating in modern times, uh, but you know, w written by Aaron Sorkin, who is just phenomenal. He crafts dialogue that is just mesmerizing. You can't stop watching the screen when these people are just walking and talking through hallways, and it's he has a way of conveying so much highly technical information in a way that you feel like you're understanding, even if you don't. It's very sweet. Um, the cast is fantastic. Michael uh, Michael Douglas is so good. He, I, I completely believe he's the president. And this, oh, once again, really hit me at just how, how missed uh, Michael J. Fox is as an actor these days. He was just so good. It, I, I think I liked him even better. I mean, he's fantastic as uh, Marty McFly, but I think he's even better in his adult roles. And I kind of wish he, uh, his career lasted a bit longer. Yeah, he's always been one of my favorites. And you guys know that Back to the Future is my favorite film. Um, so I, I would disagree oh i i can't really disagree to be fair i haven't seen american <laughs> president but uh michael j fox is great rob reiner uh who directed 
Princess Bride attached with Aaron Sorkin. Uh, that that definitely sounds like a great team up and something that I'll have to check out eventually. Yeah, I don't even think I had heard about it, but it's definitely piques my interest. Yeah, um, it's it's this this the movie that inspired the West Wing TV show that was uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. And then, you know, inspired by that, I actually started watching The West Wing. And I'm only a few episodes in, but I'm really enjoying it. It's, you know, got all, all the great things about the, uh, about the movie, just, uh, just more of it. Yeah, that's, that's probably been sitting on my queue for way too long. I've, I've been looking for shows to replace Breaking Bad after I finished it. And it's, there's really no reason I haven't started it yet. So I actually think I'm probably going to try starting West Wing, um, some point before the summer's over. And I, I rewatched one of James' favorite movies, Sing Street. And this movie is just so wonderful. Uh, it has such a deep sense of just you know, life and energy and optimism throughout it. Um, you know, it captures the joy of art and, you know, just creating something special that only you could do. It just captures all of that and, you know, what it's like to be a teenager in a bad situation, you know, it goes through the good, the bad of being a teenager and growing up in uh, – it's, it's set in Ireland during kind of a recession. And so it, 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 you know, it captures the very uh, dreary setting. But then you know the whole – all the optimism and hope of the film kind of just shines a light and all that. It's, it's just really lovely. And uh, John Carney, who – he writes and directs uh, these music-based films uh, and he also composes all the songs. And what I love is that it, it's about a kid who starts a band and – each song is like the the songs start off like bad but kind of good where you can see the promise and then as the film goes each song they write is like successively better than the last one it's it's really clever um and then all, all the act, actors are really good uh i think just irish accents are awesome yes man i that may be the easiest movie for me to just put on and watch <laughs> i've seen it a very large amount of time since I first watched it. Um, but it something that I love that it does is, is what you said where it's, you know, it's set in a very, you know, dreary period of time, especially, you know, for Ireland during that recession. But it highlights the importance that music had then, like just the way they were enthralled by Duran uh, Duran's music video. Like, we look at that and kind of roll our eyes at how cheesy it all was, but that was, like, such an important part of, you know, culture at that point. And it actually, you know, it was ended up having a really positive effect on everybody. And just the way the movie treats music and optimism, all right, it just makes for a really, really enjoyable movie all around. And all the actors are great. Have you seen this one, Chad? Unfortunately not. You know, most of the time the movies I'm watching are for Cinescope and I, I don't take as much time as I should to watch other movies as often as I should. So uh, that one's definitely on the list because I know you guys have sung the praises at this point. Uh, Patrick Hicks over from the Feel and Film podcast is always talking about how great Sing Street is. And so it it's on Netflix, I believe, right? So yes. yeah, I, I will definitely check it out when I can. So what if I make you a deal? I'll watch uh, The Way Way Back if you watch this. <laughs> okay, that sounds fair. <laughs> so you need to go watch The Way Way Back, like, right now. All right. I've been waiting <laughs> to get to that for a long time. All right. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention before we move on to the main review? I'm good. I think I'm ready. All right, let's begin our review for John Carter. John Carter. 
John Carter was released in 2012. It was directed by Andrew Stanton and is based on the classic adventure stories from Edgar Rice Burroughs. He also wrote the uh, Tarzan books. It's uh, mostly based on A Princess of Mars, but it takes elements from several other uh, books in the series. It was made on a budget of somewhere between 200, 250 and $300 million, and it only grossed 284 and is considered a pretty disastrous flop for Disney. It stars Taylor Kitsch, Lynn Collins, Willem Dafoe, Mark Strong, Dominic West, Brian Cranston, Samantha Morton, Kieran Hines, I think that's how it's pronounced, James Purfoy, Thomas Hayden Church, and it was written by Andrew Stanton, Mark Andrews, and Michael Chabon. It was shot by Dan Mandel, or Mindel, and the score was composed by Michael Giacchino. And I want to start by asking you guys, are either of you familiar with the books? I believe I read a review uh, for Princess of Mars on your site, Chad. Yeah, and that's the only book in the series that I've read. I picked it up uh, actually a few years ago. I, I've been championing this movie for a few years at this point, and I, I did this big write-up a few years ago on my website when I was still active on it. And I reviewed A Princess of Mars. I reviewed uh, uh, the movie. I reviewed the score by Giacchino. And also another book called John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood that talked about the the whole production of it and why and wh- and why it flopped the way it did unfortunately. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so I have this big write up if you want to it's it's one of only two blog posts I did on that site. It was chadtalksmovies.com uh, and the the post is called My Adventures on Barsoom. But the a Princess of Mars is the only one I've read. Okay. What about you James? Yeah, I'm actually not really. I I didn't even know about the books before the movie, um, so I I had no prior knowledge of it. Yeah, I, I I'm not even sure why I started reading the books because I wasn't terribly impressed with the trailer. But I, I I read the books before I saw the movie, and they were all on uh, LibriVox, and I listened to them like the first five or so, and I was kind of obsessed with them for a while. Just they're very simple, very straightforward adventure stories, but there's something about how uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs builds his worlds that is just really exciting and engaging. So uh, just uh, what did y'all think about the movie? Let's uh, start with you, Chad. Well, I'll start with uh, sort of my anticipation of the movie before it came out. Uh, I have followed Andrew Stanton for a long time. You know, he directed Finding Nemo and uh, the sequel, Finding Dory and Wally and had his hands in other Pixar projects. And I've been following him on Twitter for a long time. And so when he was making this movie and it was his first foray into live action, I was very interested from the start. And I was so excited for the release of this film and I never saw it in theaters. So you can blame me on the movie flopping, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it, it, I guess it just flopped before I had the chance to see it and I didn't go see it for that reason. So despite how excited I initially was for the film, my interest never waned, but I just never got around to it in the theater. So I I ended up getting it on Blu-ray. And when I finally watched it, I think, wow, this is such a beautiful film. It's such a good film. I think I, I don't remember if I read the book first. I think I ended up doing that. I think I decided I was going to go on this adventure to Barsoom. And so I might have read the book first and then I watched the movie and all that all that kind of stuff. And so when I watched the film, I had the book in mind. And these are different animals in a lot of ways. But I think that the movie really captures the heart of the original book and the spirit of the book. And it, it's just a beautifully made film. It, it 
it's so much better than the public memory makes it out to be. Yeah, and if you look at the books, they were incredibly influential in pop culture after that. Like Superman is John Carter. He literally is. And just I think Star Wars has a lot of influence. And But they're as a series, they're kind of forgotten. Like Tarzan is far more popular. And I think that's really a shame. Um, yeah, I like how you mentioned it. It's this, there's a sense of, even though the plot is very much different from the book, the sense of adventure and this like kind of old-fashioned nobility is still really infused in this film. And I think it, 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 you don't see that all that often in Hollywood. And I think it's really refreshing just how open-hearted this movie is. Well, if you look at John Carter at its core, if if we didn't have John Carter in the early 1900s, in the, I think, 1913, 1915 is when the book originally came out. If we didn't have that, then then we wouldn't have Superman or Star Wars or all these other highly archetypal entertainment series that we have nowadays. Uh, in fact, there's a scene from Attack of the Clones that is directly from John Carter. Yet John Carter is the one that sort of took the flack for copying Attack of the Clones because the movie came later. And Which, it, with the, uh, the arena? The arena, exactly. Um, and... I think a lot of people look at John Carter as something that is separate from the book, something that hasn't been around for literally a century. And that that was part of the reason why it didn't do so well is because people just thought it was a copy when, in fact, everything else is copying this. Yeah, and the trailers weren't great. I remember seeing the trailer. I was like, what is that? Is this like a Prince of Persia sequel or something? Yeah, well, even the the title itself, what what does John Carter say to you? Uh, it should have been at least John Carter of Mars, and that at least communicates a sense of sci-fi and fantasy and adventure. Instead, we get a guy's name. Who wants to go see a movie about a guy named John Carter if you have no context about that? And that was another big failure. And that's one thing, that book that I was talking about, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. Uh, I think it might be like Michael Sellers. Um, but he talks about how really they're, they, they just approached this film the wrong way and they didn't target a demographic the way they should have. And, uh, Disney paid the price for it really. Yeah. What about you, James? Uh, what's your history with this? Well, I watched it, um, for the first time, probably a couple of years ago. Uh, me and my brother would just randomly rent different movies that we'd kind of, wanted to see at some point never got around to it and we just went on the spree of of running them and marking off movies from our backlog and we watched this one and i remembered liking it a lot and so i was i was happy whenever you said that this was going to be one of the ones that we were going to cover because i actually really like taylor kitsch as an actor (laughs) and um i think it's i think it's a shame that he's not really in a whole lot anymore I feel like people just they they associate him with the movies failing when in reality I don't think he was really the reason movies <laughs> like this and Battleship fail it's just he happened to be in some movies that just were not well received but the movie itself I I I enjoy a lot I think to me it, it's a very well-rounded film and it's got a lot of it's got a it had a lot of what I enjoyed with Prince of Persia, 
but it also was much better in terms of technical aspects. And it's funny because um, I was looking it up on IMDb and on other things, and every time I looked anything up for John Carter, almost always I have recommended for you Prince of Persia. It it always I feel <laughs> like the two are always attached to each other. Uh, they really don't have a lot in common, though. I I guess I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of like even you said with the the trailer thinking it has some sort of maybe maybe it's like a prince of persia sequel i think this this sense of adventure or whatever like kind oh, of a, a long-haired shirtless guy with a sword yeah there <laughs> that's all it took for me yeah it the thing with taylor kitsch is I, i've seen him in about a half dozen films I don't even know if he's a good actor, but I really like him. Whenever, whenever I see him on screen, I think he's very likable and uh, kind of charismatic. I don't know if I've seen him in much anything else, to be honest. This is really the only thing I'm super familiar with him in. Um, I know he was in that Battleship movie, which I don't think I've seen in its entirety. I'm pretty sure he was in the Friday Night Lights TV show. But aside from that, I can't think of... Well, he was in Lone Survivor, wasn't he? Yeah, Lone Survivor. Okay, um, I did see that. So X Men Origins Wolverine. Ugh. Oh, I, I've I've seen that movie exactly one time, and I don't remember much of it on purpose. Well, guilty pleasure, guys. <laughs> yes, definitely guilty. I'm, I don't even feel guilty. <laughs> um, one thing I love about this movie is that it uses real locations so much of the time. We're not spending the entire movie in front of a green screen. It gives depth and realism to a place like Mars, which is literally a world away from us um and it, it could have been so easily over stylized and fake looking but because stanton and team decided to go with real locations that have that that distant quality to it uh, i think they filmed a lot of it in arizona or something like that it it really gives the film a sense of realism and that that, that i really enjoy at least yeah that's something i have written down it's like I can't tell where, you know, the locations end and the CGI begins because, I mean, I know some of these places I'm seeing don't exist on our world, but all of it is so seamlessly integrated in that I, I can never tell what's real and what's not. It's like going through the the, like the canyon I'm, when they're on the boat sailing through the river. I, I, I don't think there are places like that in, some, in our world, but it, it all looks so real. So I'm not sure. I, I did just look it up. It was mostly filmed in Utah. So, oh wow, yeah, which isn't a a, a place that you would think of as it, uh, th- think of for its scenery, but I guess it's sort of stark landscapes and part of the state really fit the Mars uh, stereotypes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And you know, building off that, I like how the, the all the world building in this uh, in this film is really good, and just imagine if all the cultures feel very distinct. You know, you have the red men, the Tharks, the Warhoons, they all feel very tangible. Um, and like just the, all the, like the broad CGI for helium or the, the, the walking city of Zodanga is such a cool visual, but just all of that just feels like you could just go there. It feels like a real place. And we're talking about that uh, on your show when we were talking about the Lord of the Rings, but it feels like there's a sense of history here. Like this has been going on for thousands of years and we just step into the middle of a story. And I think like that is, it's, so intangible but when a a fantasy film or a sci-fi film could do that it goes a long way to just immersing you in whatever story they're telling to me this could have so easily have been like the prequels you know with 
huge amounts of just CGI everything. Uh, but yeah, to me, it felt completely believable. Uh, there, I mean, there is definitely CGI in it, but I think because they did use all those practical effects, like you were saying, it's, there's a seamless blend between what's that, what's not there and what is there. And there's such like a, um, a great sense of continuity between like the actual locations and the practical sets and, um, with the actual CGI characters and the CGI, you know, spaceships and everything, it all it all works together to create like a really cohesive looking movie. Yeah. And if I may, just real quick, mention the the music as I'm want to do. <laughs> uh, this is I I was talking on Twitter just a few minutes before we started recording about how I don't know if Michael Giacchino has a more beautiful theme than his theme for John Carter. It is probably my favorite theme by him, at least. And it is so adaptable and robust is a word somebody used to describe it. It 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 can fit into any scenario. It's used as a love theme. It's used as an adventure theme. It's used to to build the the suspense of the moment. It it's just such a great theme. It's simple. It's endlessly whistle it's endlessly whistleable. And it <laughs> is just my favorite Giacchino theme, I think. And the rest of the score, I wouldn't call this my favorite Giacchino score, but it, it very much fits into sort of the Williams Star Wars quality of its its composition. It fits the, the narrative in a way that I think is very appropriate to the film, just like it would be in Star Wars, but it never feels like a clone of Star Wars either. It's always distinctly Giacchino. Yeah, I, c- I can never remember it outside the film, but when, when I'm watching the film, I do notice the music. It, it is quite lovely. It's mostly that main theme, man. It it, it gets me. I, I like it a lot. Yeah, the the, the one uh, standout music uh, moment I, that I do remember is is the uh, the battle scene with the Morhoons, which I'll get into more later. Something that. I, I liked a whole lot about the movie was we kind of talked about it a little bit just between the, you know, the set locations and overall design, but I just, I love the aesthetics of this movie. Um, it doesn't look like it's copying anything else in my opinion. Um, but it, it feels like it, it has a place amongst like the, the great visual sci-fis, um, I guess the closest thing it reminded me of was sometimes it would remind me of like a, a Final Fantasy with a, these huge, almost what looks often like kind of sailboats, but they're flying around. And um, I love the design of the aliens. Uh, they they did something in this movie that I really like when movies do, which is too often movies will create like an alien race and they'll all look the exact same. And the only way they kind of differentiate each other is with color. But in this, even though with a lot of the background characters, they did look a lot alike. With the, almost all of the chief characters, all the aliens actually look different from each other. And you could tell them apart without like, you know, some some sort of color or wound or anything to differentiate them. Um, and I think the fact that they, they look like their own species and not just like copies of each other and like they were an actual society and then you, you see them and you see all of these, you know, spaceships and their civilization. Just the the design of everything, it all felt super unique. Uh, and that actually might be my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, the ships are awesome. Just with the, the solar panel wings and that kind of look like feathers. 
It's really, really fun. They almost look like dragonflies flitting through the sky. Yeah. And it it's weird because even though they, they, they are flying, it does to me feel more like, you know, the our kind of ships, like ship-to-ship combat like that, um, you know, boarding each other. And it just, it was such a, it was the initial scene, um, the initial space battle or ship battle, there was, it, it just felt really, really unique. But I remember whenever the first time I watched it, watching that part, I was thinking like this, this doesn't really feel like a, anything else. But it, it, you can also see, it, it's like a blend of different things that you've seen, but it all comes together to, to just look like something wholly unique. Well, unlike Star Wars, the ships aren't flitting back and forth, zooming in loops and aerials and all this kind of stuff. It, you're right, it is very much like more naval combat that we would have here on Earth, and they make that comparison in the movie. John Carter talks about how on Earth we have ships that sail on the, the endless water of the, of the planet. Here, she talks about how they sail on light. It's not flying, it's sailing on light. So right there, you have the comparison between the, the their flying ships and our normal ships. It's the same. It's just the medium through which they're, they're traveling. And I, I like how they have the, the mix of this crazy futuristic technology with a very um, old-fashioned kind of fashion sense and uh, weaponry. Like, it, if you... Th- if you think about it, it doesn't exactly make sense that they all use swords when they all have guns. But I never think about that in the film, just because the swords are cool. <laughs> but it, it all just works together. And like I, when they use the guns, it feels natural. When they when they choose to fight with swords, it all just works. Since I I haven't read the books, do they do, does the book do a lot of like um, description? Did the the ships and everything, all the environments feel like an accurate translation from the books? Yeah, he he does a lot of world building. He'll get into the mechanics of how the ships fly, how the guns work, how they're, and all of that. And uh, it's been a while, but from what I remember, it, it the the all the production design felt very close to the books and the uh, kind of the uh, the meta the physics of the world. It seems like the more detail the author puts into their work, the better the adaptation kind of turns out. Just because you've got. You've you've already got a sense of history and a very detailed sense of history to pull from, as opposed to trying to just wing it and come up with your own ideas that reflect what's going on in the book. Yeah, I think they did a good job. They do take a lot of li- a lot of liberties, but I think they do a really good job of you know keeping to the the spirit of the books. Um, and I guess since you're talking about the books, I might as well go into my what is kind of my main problem with the film. Uh, I think I usually don't like dock a film for straying from the books. I think it's usually kind of shallow. But in this case, I think if they had stuck closer to the book, they would have avoided this problem. And that is, there. I think there, there are way too many uh, story plots going on. It's just the uh, you have first just John Carter being sent to another planet and learning about everything. You have his romance with Dejah Thoris. You have him ascending in within the culture of the Tharks. You have... Tars Tarkin and his daughter. You have the Thurns trying to take over the world. Then you have the uh, conflict between Zodanga and uh, Helium. And I think it's all just a bit much. Um, the main place where they do uh, stray from the books is having the Thurns in this in this film. In the books, they don't show up till uh, book two, and they're they're very different. They're just they're just another race of men. They're not these godlike creatures. And 
my, my problem is that with this film, I, I don't think they're necessary. The, the film, there are already pl- a lot of conflicts going on. I think just the war between Healing and Zodanga is plenty of conflict to fill the center of the film. And having them there, first off, we, I, I heard all their monologuing, but I still don't know what they actually want and what their, what their grand plan is. And so I don't really care about them. And they don't really add anything. I mean, Zodanga is already at war with, uh, with healing before they show up. So them showing up just kind of is just another element to pay attention to. And I think if you remove them, you would uh, kind of help trim up the, t- the runtime and take out the two mo- what I think is the two most um, uh, kind of irrelevant portions of the film, which are the uh, the the scene where they go to the whatever that temple thing is in uh, in the river, or that the long exposition walk with uh, Matai Shea and Carter. It's just a whole scene of them uh, walking through the streets of uh, Zodanga. And Mark Strong is just detailing every aspect of his evil plot. He he starts monologuing. I mean, the guy has him on a platter and he won't shut up. And <laughs> I think it, the film would have been a lot stronger if they just kind of excised that entire element and just let it be about, um, you know, John Carter coming to this world. He doesn't believe anything and, and you know, learning to be able to join a cause, to take up a cause, to do what's right again. Yeah, it's been a few years since I read A Princess of Mars, but what I mostly remember, or at least what I think I remember, is that the book was focused on John Carter just, he's suddenly on Mars, and he's in the middle of this conflict between these different societies. You have Tars Tarkas and the Tharks, you've got Helium, you've got all, all these places that are in conflict with each other, and John Carter has to sort of pick a side and eventually unite everybody, right? Uh, that, that's more or less what mm-hmm. I remember. And I, I agree that the Therns, I haven't read beyond that first book, so I had no introduction to the Therns whatsoever. And that, that is my biggest problem with this movie as well. That being said, I think the, the, the Thern plot gets better the farther into the movie you get. It, it gets a little bit more uh, understandable, I suppose, is the, the word I'm looking for. But uh, as a whole... I think that there were enough villains in the film without involving the Therns as well. That being said, I love the ending of the film with John, uh, with John sort of performing a sneak attack on a Thern in order to get back to Mars. Yeah, uh, yes, I, yes. I, I think that that whole setup is really really cool. That's one of the more rewarding parts of the movie to me is that this character who at the beginning of the film we were told he's dead and we're reading basically a memoir from him and at the end we see oh this was all this elaborate trap so that he could get back to the woman he loves and to the the people that he is serving. I think that's awesome. But there's just a lot of convolutedness in the middle because of the whole Thern plot and it it, it could have been better if they had excised that, but still managed to incorporate such an awesome ending, or at least just minimize the Thern's involvement through the rest of the film. Yeah, I'm glad that you said it, Gabriel, because, you know, after he gets through with his very long monologue, I too was like, wait, okay, so should I rewind this? Because I I, I still don't know. <laughs> what, what was the plot again? Like, or what was his his whole deal? Um and it to me it's based you know on my understanding 
of what their whole role is, it's way less interesting than what's actually going on. Like the uh, this this war between these two different peoples to me is way more interesting without these this random floating godlike guy floating around doing his own thing. It it does distract from a movie that like you said has a lot of things going on and it it seems like with a lot of these first installments to planned um series it feels like they're just wanting to catch an audience up to what they should know too fast like it almost reminded me of of Warcraft where they're like they're not bad movies but there's such an extensive lore and there's already a, you know a good deal of history that the general audience doesn't know about to where it's like right from the very beginning it's just a massive dump of information on all these different things that by the end of it you're like i i'm not sure that any one of these things was fully developed to its you know full potential just because there's so many things that the the film is trying to get me to understand instead of just telling a, a more focused story yeah and i i think there could have been a way to include them that would have helped the story if if because one element that they bring that I really do like is the uh, teleportation medallions in the book. He's just laying on the ground and he looks up at the sky and really wants to go to Mars and then he's there, and that's just not very cinematic. Um, so I think having the medallions where you say the words is really really cool. Um, like after they all win and Matai Shang just touches him and sends him back to Earth is is shocking. It really works and then. Having the Thurns allows for that the really cool ending, um, where we we where as Chad mentioned we realize it's the whole story is a ruse, uh, the whole dying thing is a ruse to bring the Thurns out of hiding so he can get another medallion. All of that is really good, but I think if they just had the Thurns kind of in the background as a more shadowy villain, that didn't really they never really uh, came into the conflict. So you could have them in the sequel like they, like they were in the books. You know, these people trying to control all the goings on of the of Mars is interesting. And that could have been the plot of the sequel, but I think they're just intruding way too much in the plot of this one. And then really they're never resolved in this film either. So it's just kind of, and the film is really long. And so the, the times where I'm kind of getting the most bored and like, and losing my focus is during the scenes involving, uh, John Carter, like kind of researching the therns. Yeah. And that being said that that's pretty much my only dislike of the movie. I love so much of the rest of it. Um, if, if, if I may, if I may move on, uh, most yeah. of my other notes are character notes because that's what I do. Um, first off with John Carter, the whole Virginia thing makes me laugh every <laughs> single time. And every time I hear the word Virginia in real life, I have to at least say that a couple times in my head or out loud, whatever the situation calls for. <laughs> um, and I really love that the, the difference that they made from John Carter in the book to John Carter in the film, because if you read the book, John Carter, in at least the first book is perfect. He is just an ultimate <laughs> hero. He's a good guy through and through. He has no doubt of who he is, what he can do. He's just an awesome character. And for the book, it's pulp. He's it's, also immortal. Right. And it, it, it's, it's pulpy. It, it, works for the, the the medium you can't do that in a movie and get away with it you have to have some sort of growth and so he's a flawed man in this movie he's we see from the very beginning he's a fighter but he's averse to war because of the losses he suffered at the hands of war he's lost his family and 
he he's selfish because of this. He's stubborn and disrespectful towards those in authority in his loss. But despite that, we see that he's a man who tends to doing the things that he believes are right, helping those who need it, whether it's saving Colonel Powell from the Apaches at the very beginning or saving Deja from falling from the ship or at the end deciding to help the Tharks and the Heliumites on Mars. He he's always doing the right thing, but it's it's a process. He he makes a selfish he makes a selfish decision a couple of times throughout the rest of the film, but ultimately that's not who he is. Who he is is John Carter of Mars. He is the character from the book, but he has to get there. And that that is one aspect of the title that I do like is that this movie was about John Carter of Earth becoming John Carter of Mars. And presumably if we had ever gotten a sequel, it would have been straight up John Carter of Mars and this character that we saw develop in front of us in this movie. Yeah. like Throughout the books, the one defining characteristic of John Carter is that he will always rush in to any fight to defend the underdog, no matter how like strategically inadvisable it is. And so I always get a kind of a little thrill when I see uh, him ride back for Colonel Powell. It just, it's, it's something that, that could have been in the books. It's just, it's so, that, that is what John Carter would do. Um, and I think my favorite part of the film is his arc and how well it's handled. I think it, it is really subtle just how his uh, backstory is spread across the entire film. At, at first, when he's uh, kind of detained by Powell and he says, you know, whatever you think I owe this world or, or you know, our nation or any beloved cause I have paid in full. And you see his uh, wedding ring. And over the course of the film, we get little flashbacks, you know, to his wife and his child, and we realize that last time he took up a cause, you know, he joined the Civil War. Uh, he he was gone, and his family was attacked or something. They were murdered, and you know he wasn't there to protect them, and so he's he's haunted by that, and he doesn't want to get himself involved in any other conflict after that. He, it's you know it's cost him too much, and finally, you know, in you know that over the course of the film, you know, he's he's falling for Deja Thoris. And then there's that moment where he has to decide to, you know, just put all his uh, hesitation to the side and embrace another cause. And he he's ready to sacrifice himself for her. And in my favorite scene of the film, which is this is like one of my like probably all time favorite scenes is when he uh, fights off all the war hoons. It's I really like this this movie, but this scene is like better than the entire movie. It's so good. Just how it's uh, put together with, you know, as he's fighting, he's like reliving, finding his uh, dead wife. And as he's uh, killing the Tharks, the, the uh, Warhoons, we have, uh, it keeps cutting back to him, you know, finding his wife and burying her. And like his sword swings are kind of matched to him shoveling the dirt or hammering in the cross. It, it's such a beautiful haunting scene. And, uh, Chichina's music just kind of comes up and drowns out all the sound. That, that's, that's, that's one place where I do remember his music. And it's just, th- this scene is insane. It's like, devastating if, is what it is. Yeah. It, it, if I can make a scene that is half that good, like I, I can die happy as a filmmaker. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that, that was one of the biggest things that I did want to talk about. That scene was so good. And I, I remember thinking in my head, I thought very similar to what you said, where it's like, this is a good movie, like solid start to finish good movie. 
but this scene is phenomenal um just the timing of everything with with the sword matching with the um with the the shovel and everything that's going on i i love the way that this movie slowly reveals his past as it goes on and it like his the backstory we're we're given the backstory as his character develops so every time every time we learn or every time he makes another character change or he begins to grow we understand more about where he's coming from and that scene to me is probably the the best usage of incorporating his his history into the the actual plot as it's moving along um and that too is the moment where i noticed the music just everything about that scene the way it all came together is so good another favorite scene is later the the arena scene that i talked about earlier where john uh, has decided to stay on Mars. He had the opportunity to go back to Earth uh, selfishly if he had so chosen, but he decides to stay and to make the right decision. And to do that, to save Deja from the marriage and to kill off the Thern or whatever he needs to do, he has to go get an army. Well, where's he going to get an army? The Tharks. And so he goes back and he has Sola and Wula with him and he finds Tars and they're in the arena. And he, that, that first off that scene is just really cool. Uh, it, it's, it's just like in attack of the clones, to be honest, it, you, you see the guys, the good guy overpower the beasts that are meant to kill him. And by the end, everybody is cheering for him and he defeats Tal Hajis. He, he calls him out and everybody's cheering for John and I love how sort of anticlimactic that battle is because for me, that is John Carter of Mars. That is the character from the book who has reached his full potential and he is the ultimate good guy now. He is there not to to reach his own ends, but to reach an end for somebody else and to fight for somebody else. And so for me, when Tal Hadis jumps out of the crowd and... Uh, descends onto John and is immediately beheaded. It's just the ultimate good triumphing over evil. I love that. And then the 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 speech that he gives to convince the Tharks to to put aside old old uh, arguments and and fight for helium because it, it's not just about protecting helium. It's about protecting themselves to a certain extent and protecting their planet. And it, it's just a great rousing speech and everybody's caught up in the moment and it, it it's really satisfying. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film as well. Yeah, I, I really do love how unceremoniously uh, Taha just is killed. And just for me thinking, I, I forgot that it happened like that. Whenever I got there, I was, for whatever reason, I thought I'd, I remembered an actual like duel between the two. And I kind of rolled my... like preemptively rolled my eyes because i was thinking isn't the whole point that he's like this he has this crazy amount of strength and he's leaping all over the place and i'm sure they're just going to make this guy equally strong with him simply because he's the antagonist and even though it kind of contradicts what's happened before they want their cool duel but no he just beheads him like that and i just (laughs) uh i really like the way it was handled yeah another thing about about those two action scenes is just how good the CGI in this film is. There, there is some bad green screen that I don't understand, but the creature CGI for all the Tharks, the Warhoons, the white apes is 
perfect. I mean, it's completely flawless as far as I can tell. Um, and then on top of that, the integration of how you integ- they integrated, you know, um, John Carter, like when, when he's fighting all the Warhoons, I don't even know how you begin to do that. Just the, you have a small, a, a normal guy who's really there that all these CGI creatures that are like kind of bigger than him with four arms. And yet somehow as he's fighting it, that scene feels exactly like it would, what it would be to have a superpowered man fighting giant four-armed creatures. There's never a moment in that entire scene where I'm taken out because of the effects. And like, I can't say that from, from many movies, even today uh, to have effects this flawless and like the, the facial effects when we're up close with a, like a Sola or Tars Tarkas, when they're, when they're, they're having emotion. You can you can see everything in their face. It's it's amazing. I believe the way that the Tharks were filmed is the actors were actually all on stilts, and so it's it's straight up motion capture live in the scene, which is awesome. It's not them in a studio recording their part and them fitting it into the picture alongside John Carter. It's everybody is there and reacting to each other, and it's very much their in real time facial expressions that made it into the film. So that was a, a great choice on their part to to give everybody the the presence of their characters and add the special effects on top of that so it's not lost. Yeah yeah but, but there's no way they really sh- like the the th- the Warhoon battle. Oh no, of course not that so, one, but so I just physical, mean like but they still look so yeah. real. Yeah, I just mean in in terms of the details of the faces in the the other the main characters. Yeah, I, I think what makes all like the visuals work is just everything kind of coming together. I, I don't know who actually like which uh, company did the CGI for it, but obviously, as you're saying, like the CGI is great and the designs are all great. And we've kind of talked about like, the way it uses practical effects and how everything looks visually distinct. I mean. I, I've I've already seen, you know I love the designs of the Tharx these tall, slender frames and the forearms and the tusk. It's just to me I wish the movie did better because I feel like those aliens should be iconic at this point just in terms of design. I really believe this film should have got should have at least gotten a best special effects uh, nomination. I mean just not only for how good they are like with the characters but for the scale and amount of effects we see for how flawless it is for so much time i mean th- th- this film really was robbed of that nomination in my opinion yeah i feel like you know reception does play like a big factor oh, maybe not with sui- uh, oscar winning suicide suicide squad at this point <laughs> but uh so maybe that point is moot now they should have used makeup but instead of a cgi there it is but you know while we're on the topic of um characters i that was the thing that surprising most on this rewatch is remembering it i remembered liking it a lot and i remember my favorite thing being you know how visually cool it was with the 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 flying ships and the the cool alien designs and everything about that but i forgot how much i actually liked all of the characters and i forgot mainly the depth that they were all given um nobody at least just right off the top of my head nobody really feels super cliche and even the ones that do kind of feel cliche are at least given enough to not be like unbearably bad um i think that taurus tarkas first of all when 
I'm always going to love Willem Dafoe. Like, I just love him as an actor. But that's a really, he's just a really, really cool character where, you know, this, this whole, their whole society is fairly brutal. You know, you reach, you reach a certain amount of um, strikes and you're killed. Um, And these aren't, you know, like criminal activity. It's just like, you know, I, I can't help but think based on who Sola is as a character, there's no way she was doing anything horribly, like in terms of morality, horrible, but she's received all these marks. And so it's a very brutal, um, almost brutish type of society. And he plays a character that's able to kind of fit in with that while also being sympathetic. It's not like they're, you know, a, a one dimensional society, like, Oh, we're, we're always tough. We're, we're this kind of race. There is still, you know, friendship and loyalty and um, and like, you know, emotional sympathy they have for each other. And I think it was a overall, their entire culture to me was really cool and more nuanced than it could have been. And hit him within it, I thought was one of the highlights of the movie. Yeah. Uh, one of the subplots that I really liked was uh, that of uh, Sola and uh, Tars Tarkas, their kind of father daughter relationship to where he knew he was her father, but it was kind of it was forbidden. Like so, much, it was so forbidden, you know, to have a child that wasn't collectively raised. That if people found out, they would kill him. And you see, he like he's he's how protective he is of her. Like he he doesn't want to violate the laws of the, the uh, society, but you know he's always trying to to help her whenever he can. And I love just how angry he gets with John Carter whenever he puts her he gets her into trouble. Like when they get caught into the temple, or when he brings her back on the flyer, like. In those moments, he's scary. Like, he, I, if I would, I could believe that he would actually kill John Carter right there because he's so angry that he would, you know, put his daughter in danger. And I, I really wish that uh, that subplot got more screen time, but I do like what's there. That's what's so unique about Tars and Sola, though, is that the, from what I remember, the the Thark culture is completely free of emotion or it's at least it's supposed to be they they raise their babies and eggs and they go grab them when they're hatched and bring them back and it's it's open grabs for anybody who wants a kid i guess and it's all about war achievements and pledging your medal to other people and there there's no personal relationships going on it's it's very anti personal relationships but here we have Tars, who has secretly raised his own child, whether she knows it or not, he knows it. And that's what's important. And John sees the desperation and the care that Tars shows for Sola and automatically knows that it's a father-daughter relationship because he's experienced that love and loss of his own child. It, he identifies with Tars on the, the level of fatherhood. And that's that's awesome. That That's so different than what we have seen in the Thark society up to that point. And it, it it's just cool to see amidst a species focused on war and violence, you have Tars and you have Sola both as rays of compassion. Um, while we're still talking characters, the only one I really had left was Dejah Thoris, um, who, again, great change from the book. It works in the book. She's a damsel in distress. That's who she is. That's That's her character in the first book, at least. Here, she's less a damsel in distress. She's more. She has a more active role in the story. She's smart. She's strong. She's both a scientist and an incredibly capable warrior. We see her on both ends of the spectrum in this movie. And, you know, she's a woman desperate for a way out. And she's willing to do anything 
and to trust anyone to protect her people. She sees something special in John, yes, in his ability to jump great distances and in his strength, but she also sees the good in him. She understands that deep down, he is a man who is willing to help those in need. And it's because of her faith in him that John is able to see the good in himself. She and she enables him to become John Carter of Mars. And I think that that's such a, a better part that she has in the story here than she does in the book. Yeah, I, I like that. Everything she does is for her people. Like when, when she runs away, it's not just like she's a, a selfish princess who will will doom her people just to avoid a marriage. It's because, you know, she doesn't believe that a that a Sabthan will actually honor his word. So she's doing what she can, try, trying to save her people. And, you know, when she thinks that it might, it might actually be the best thing to do to marry him, she's willing to do that as well. And uh, I think, yeah, she's a very kind of noble character. I like how, <laughs> I, I like the scene when, uh, after um, Carter first saves her and then the ship lands and he kind of grabs her sword. And she's just like looking at it and then she reaches for her sword and she's like, whoa, what is going on? It's always a funny little scene. Yeah, and soon after that, when she has discovered, quote-unquote, John Carter and has seen his abilities, and she wants to stick around to talk to him and to witness him more, and she she walks up to Tars, I think, and says, uh, you may take me as your prisoner, or I surrender, you may take me as your prisoner, <laughs> just because she wants to stick around and see what this guy's going to do next and figure out exactly who he is and what he does. She doesn't even look at him. She kind of just walks by and hands it to him and keeps going toward Carter. Yeah, it's a funny moment. Yeah, I, you know, having not read the book, it does sound like I I like her character more in the movie than what it would have been because, like you were saying, Gabe, about every action she does, it is, it's it's for a greater good. And to me, she never, she never felt annoying or like this character that was kind of along for the ride with John Carter. And in a lot of ways, even though like the emotional story was very centered on John Carter, like the bigger picture, she was she felt more of the star of what was actually going on with the story of the film itself and all these major events. And I think that she was given some really great lines and some really good character moments in the movie that probably weren't not not ne- I think they're necessary for the movie to be as good as it is, but I, I think you know, in the wrong hands they may have been like, oh, this isn't really necessary. But um, one of the lines that I actually really liked a lot was whenever she's telling uh, John Carter what the words to say are to to leave, and then as, as they come in and they ask her, you know, are you alone? And she looks around and she you know she says, yes, I am alone. It's you really start to understand like the way she's looking at everything this she feels like she's the only person who really understands the stakes and the consequences of all of these different actions and you start to feel like at least i did like the weight of the whole world on her like her father is doing things with the best intentions but he he unlike her he's not really looking at the likely likely outcome of different things going on so She's she's making all of these major decisions and she's trying to find help wherever she can. And even if it means, you know, manipulating people, it's never for selfish reasons. And it's always for, you know, the greater good of what's going on for for the for Mars as a planet. And so I just I 
actually really ended up liking her character a lot and kind of a common theme for the episode was I, I liked it more than I remembered, even though I remembered quite enjoying the movie. Yeah. About that scene. I like that she is such, you know, a noble and kind person that even though she could really use John Carter and she doesn't have to tell him the way to get home, she's still going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And that says a lot about her. Another thing I wanted to mention, I, I like this. Uh, the film has a, a very kind of fun sense of humor running through it. It, it reminds me a bit of a film we talked about, The Mummy, the uh, 1999 Mummy. Just as a, even though it does take itself seriously when it needs to, there's this, this really clever sense of humor. Like when, uh, I think that probably came from Andrew, Andrew Stanton. Like when in the beginning, when uh, John Char- Carter keeps trying to escape from uh, Brian Cranston. <laughs> it's it's a really cleverly edited scene where he'll like get up and start to escape the musical rise up and then it'll cut back and he's just sitting there they caught him again and it happens like two or three times it's always really funny yeah and, and brian cranston's character is just continuing the same speech from where he last <laughs> left off it, it's yeah. it's always a continued conversation that that always makes me laugh as well yeah and brian cranston i think this was right before he kind of exploded from uh breaking bad but he is so he's only on the in the film for like maybe five minutes of screen time but he he completely owns the scenes he's in yeah i did not remember him being it at all and that's obviously because like you said he he wasn't really a thing and then watching it back i was like at first i was like wait why would they get brian cranston only for this small role but then you realize you know he's not this huge name at that point but i remember thinking that scene could have really gone poorly um it, the joke could have been overused or it could have been I mean it already feels a little bit over the top but over the top in the right way and it really easily could have been over the top in the wrong way and I think it's because of Andrew Stanton's experience with Pixar and you know to me Pixar consistently has a really great and very like confident sense of humor where like they're, they're making jokes it, and it's very like it's never like halfway jokes they're they know exactly the kind of humor they're going for and this movie kind of carried that with it um and i i think it it did what it did really well with the humor was that it felt almost like ongoing they weren't just in the moment quips and in um and like you know there there are funny visual gags but it doesn't just rely on that for humor um like with the the salute the initial way that John Carter greets him. <laughs> and then, you know, that's kind of something that they learn. And now this other culture that has just been introduced to the salute is now saluting this other culture. And now they're kind of looking at him like, what is this in the middle of that battle? Uh, and I thought that was really funny. And it was a really way to, to call back to something that had already happened in the movie. Um, and then another ongoing joke that I liked a lot was the, the Tharks um, aversion to flying. Uh, to them finally <laughs> charging at the end of the battle after like, essentially crashing this starship into the into the building <laughs> and uh, Sola's, Sola's line, which actually made me audibly laugh out loud, was, flying is good. <laughs> I love his like, oh, thank the goddess <laughs> <laughs> after they're done flying. Right. Uh, a one and done scene that has that same sort of sense of humor is when John first arrives on Mars and he tries to pick himself up from the dirt and he realizes, whoa, I have this weird super strength ability. And so it's it's a few seconds of him jumping and leaping all across Mars on accident uh, at first. 
and we, we have this great Giacchino track called uh, The Gravity of the Situation. And it's like this playful waltz with the John Carter theme, and he's figuring out how to adjust to this new atmosphere. And yes, it's silly, but it's lighthearted, it's fun, and it's just a moment to breathe before we get into the heavier uh, material of the film. Yeah. Aren't Giacchino track titles the best? They are. Uh, they're, here, I have it pulled up real quick. I can read a few of the good ones. There's A Thern for the Worse. There's Thark Side of Barsoom. There's... <laughs> Uh, Carter, they come. Carter, they fall. A third warning, um, and third about. <laughs> yeah, the the dawn of the Planet of the Apes soundtrack is is beautiful. The, all the horrible puns he makes. Yeah, the only one that he's he's composed that didn't have uh, the puns was Rogue One. But I think he actually posted a an alternate track list title somewhere. So that is awesome. Uh, just one more joke I wanted to mention was after you know, he gives the rousing speech and all the all the uh, Tharks are going to join him. And this really epic scene of them riding across the desert, blowing the gates of uh, Zodango open <laughs> and they get in and there's no one there. And uh, Taras Tarkus just like slaps John Carter in the back of the head. <laughs> right? They find out that it's a healer and he just gives him a slap like, oh, you doofus. <laughs> what, yeah, what I loved about that kind of humor was that it all felt natural to the characters like that's exactly what Tars Tarkas would have done it it never just feels like like to me when, when a joke feels like it could have been given by anybody then it's kind of just there because the movie wanted a joke but it works so much better to me when it makes sense within the context of not just the character but the culture as well so like all of the humor about flying it, it makes sense because of who they are you know tars hitting them it makes sense because of the relationship that we've seen develop between these two to that point so like i, I thought it was it was really well done kind of humor and I, I completely forgot that it was andrew stanton so i guess just like we've been saying his his experience with pixar and him knowing how to weave humor seamlessly into the narrative really helped out in the movie one small thing that I wanted to mention uh, was their their smart way to get rid of the language barrier. Uh, because if I remember correctly, in the book, John Carter actually spends like a period of several months with the Tharks. And that's how he learns the language. Uh, where here, maybe you would see, hey, how, do, how does that even work? But I think it's better that they, they gave some sort of solution with the, the voice of Barsoom, water, that Sola gives him rather than him appearing on Mars and all of a sudden just speaking the language. So I, I like that they had a a means of getting rid of the language barrier that wasn't spending months in this the this setting. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of goofy, but it, it works and the film moves on pretty fast. So I don't mind it. And at least it's addressed because I feel like too often it's like everybody's just speaking English. That's just what's happening. I can appreciate the fact that the movie at least tries to give an actual explanation as opposed to just him showing up and speaking and finding a culture that's speaking English as well. Yeah, that just happened in Wonder Woman where all the Germans speak English even to the to the uh, Americans. The last thing that I wanted to talk about was I, I really, really like period pieces. I, I love movies um, set in this time period. And I like the fact that, you know, the visuals of, um, I like the, the contrast between the visuals of Mars and then the, the visuals of 
of uh, you know America at that time. And I, I like the fact that instead of making Mars like all, all of the different you know spaceships and enemies, it all feels very much like that old kind of pulp, you know, uh, early early sci-fi vibe that you get, as opposed to trying to take what we think of about like sci-fi and make the movie look like that. It fully embraces the time period that the book was set in, both in terms of you know him in America as well as the representation of Mars and all of the sci-fi elements. Um, I, I I like you know we, we talked about the scene where he goes back um, and he he uses his nephew to find a way back to Mars, but I like how um, even outside of his own past, just the way that the real world or not the real the you know Earth is presented as it still has connections to Mars, like with the the Thern still seeking him and. Overall, just the way that even though scenes on Earth aren't in it a whole lot, the way whenever we do go back, it always feels it, it always feels like right for the plot, and it kind of it moves it forward in a cool way, especially at the end. And I do I did kind of co- go into this with the Therns as a negative, but as y'all said, that ending is so cool. The idea that the whole thing is kind of this bait and switch. Um, is a really cool way to to work his previous life and the the lessons he learned on Mars going back to Earth and then back to Mars. It's it's a really cool way to finish the movie. Yeah, that's another musical bit that I actually do remember is you know as he's reading the uh, the last of the diary and it's getting more and more urgent. The music kind of builds as he runs out. It's a really well put together scene. Um, I guess for my uh, my last thing I want to mention is uh, James uh, Purfoy. He's as a I forget it, I forget what is his name um, Kantos Khan, and I remember we were mentioning him in the, in our review for the A Knight's Tale, and like this film, he has a very small role, but he just he completely sta- uh, stands out wherever he is. I think it's, it might be my second favorite film in this. Uh, I mean, my second favorite scene in the film, where he goes to uh, bust John Carter out of confinement, <laughs> and he just walks up to him like, "I hear you're very dangerous." He's like, "Take my sword." John's like, are you all right? <laughs> he just pulls his own sword and holds it to his throat. It's like, oh no, the madman's taking me hostage. Just that entire scene is so hysterical. And even though he's in such a small role, he just he always really just stands out in whatever film he's in. And it, it's crazy uh, the different roles he's played because like the three roles I'm most familiar with him are are this and then A Knight's Tale. <laughs> And then the the TV show, the following, and he's complete like three completely different people across all three, but he plays each different kind of character so well. And I get the worst thing about watching this movie is how much it reminded me that I I really wanted a sequel, because like you said, this is a very small character, but he he played it with such like a a playfulness and a, a very he gave him such a sense of likability that you you want you watch all these characters and you kind of you want to see them continued because we did get such small amounts of them but they were they're such enjoyable amounts that it's a shame that the movie didn't that the series didn't go further yeah should we just surrender is that what you do on assume i heard that you can jump there yeah uh, he's also really good in uh, solomon kane that's another movie that i've been meaning to see 
All right, uh, so is there anything else you guys want to mention before we move into our final thoughts? I'm good. All right, uh, why don't you start, James? So to me, this movie is... I I remember one of the things that you said, uh, Chad, whenever we had you on for Prince of Persia, which is, you know, you said that that movie was just a fun movie, an easy movie to sit down and enjoy, um, and we need movies like that. To me, that's exactly how I would describe this movie, because... It does. It has a really fun sense of adventure, um, and I'm I always end up loving movies that are just kind of breezy movies to to sit down and watch and enjoy. Um, and this is that, but I feel like it's more than that. It's more than a lot of movies that could be described as that because it does it does have great characters that are given more depth than a lot of movies like this might have given them. Um, and then I. I I just think in terms of its technical aspects, it gets a lot of things right. Like the visuals, as we've said, are really fantastic. I think the action choreography is really good throughout. Um, the performances are all really fun. To me, there, apart from maybe saying that it is overstuffed, there's not really a lot of negative things that I would say about it. I, I echo most of what James just said. It's a movie that, I had been anticipating for a long time and I, I looked while while we I had some downtime here in this conversation. I originally read the book, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood, and halfway through reading that book and reading into the disaster of this movie, I decided to pick up the book and then watch the movie. And I just was dumbfounded that a movie that I think is excellent and outstanding. I when I rated it and reviewed it, I gave it four and a half stars. Yes, it's bloated in some point. Some aspects, especially when you're talking about the the concept of the therns and their introduction to this movie, it 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 does get a little bit bloated, but mostly I just get drawn into the the characters. John being this ultimate character of good, but he has to get there. He has to get to that point where he's the ultimate good. And Deja being this character who's taking control and doing everything she can to help her people. It, it, there's just so many cool moving parts in this movie and in this world in general that I, I really wish we had gotten a sequel. It's probably never going to happen, at least not from Andrew Stanton at this point. But what what we did get i really enjoy it's it's a, a great film yeah hey they're, they're rebooting everything under the sun so who knows tomorrow we'll wake up and there'll be a new one coming we'll see we'll see yeah um it it, it really saddens me that uh it'll probably be a while before uh andrew stanton or brad bird get to uh make another big film after this and tomorrowland but i i think there's something really unique that animation directors can bring when they come into live action, just the the especially in the comedic sequences, they're so cleverly done, and the editing is so tight, and they're, they're just really memorable. The way I would love to see him make like an action comedy, I think that's where his strengths would really stand out as a director. Um, and maybe he can like avoid some of the pitfalls he made here. Just overall, it's a giant, sprawling, bloated, fun adventure film that uh, it's an epic on the scale we don't often see with a sense of, you know, just joy that, that is just, is so rare. And I think films like, films like this are valuable. Um, and it's really sad that it didn't get even the, the box office or critical uh, acclaim that I think it kind of deserves just for how, how well put together it is and how disastrous it could have been. 
Yeah, I mean, I, there are probably so many different movies that we could compare it to that don't work. I, I think that when movies like this are made that are just very fun and adventurous, whenever movies like that are made and are well put together, I think it should be rewarded, and it's a shame that this movie wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that was our review for uh, John Carter. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please uh, go and rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, thanks again for coming on, Chad. And I want to give you another chance to let people know where to find you online. Sure. Thanks for having me back. You can find me on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And you can find my show, The Cinescope Podcast, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Tune in radio, all the places you can normally find podcasts. And again, we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. So go check it out. And uh, if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. Uh, feel free to comment with any films that you uh, think are underrated. And if you want to find our other uh, episodes, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. And uh, next week is your pick, James. So what will we be looking at? So all of this talk about the mummy. And then um, some news coming out about Mission Impossible 6. I was just thinking about Tom Cruise and some of his filmography. It made me think about War of the Worlds. And this is a movie that it actually got fairly decent critical reception. It's at a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the audience reception is at 42%. And I think it's, over time, it's become increasingly disliked. That's just how people work, I think, where, you know... If it wasn't really well received, if it's kind of mediocre initial, like, no, nah, I liked it. Over time, people will focus more on the negative, and it's, it's built up a reputation that I don't really think it deserves, because I actually think it's, in, in most aspects, a really good movie. So uh, I look forward to talking about that. <laughs> I haven't seen that in forever, though I, I don't remember being terribly fond of it, so th- that'll be interesting. It fits nicely in a genre that's one of my favorites, which is just... It's it's a disaster movie, and uh, any any sort of movie about mass panic and people moving from one place to the next and huge nationwide and global disasters. I, it, for whatever reason, I always get drawn in. All right, well, I'm looking forward to it. So until next week, when we see if Gabriel is still meh on the movie, we will <laughs> see you next time. See ya.